The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. And they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Welcome to Talk is Jericho. It is the pot of thunder and rock and roll and home of the patented Duff McKagan joke of the week. Chris Jericho, Duff McKagan calling you from uh, the south of France. Hey, listen, uh, do you know what pronouns uh, chocolate uses? I'll tell you. Her, she. Thank you very much. Goodbye. Duff delivers his usual four years and counting every Friday with a joke of the week. Thanks to Duff and thanks to everyone who's already bought a ticket to the Winnipeggers' 100th anniversary Shit Mix Celebration live pay-per-view. That's right. We hit 100 episodes, and we're blowing it up with a live rock and roll party on June 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern, 6 p.m. Pacific. Come celebrate with us. Lots of shenanigans, kazoo playing, imitations, hand-drawn artwork, all the wackiness and zaniness that you expect from the Winnipeggers. Three idiots that have, uh, can't believe we've actually been able to do this for over two years. It was a lot of fun. Lots of stuff going on, so go to momenthouse.com slash the Winnipeggers to get your ticket. We're also doing an exclusive VIP after party on Zoom, which will be limited to 50 fans. Once again, momenthouse.com slash the Winnipeggers for the 100th anniversary shit mix celebration live June 13th at 9 p.m. Eastern. And don't forget Fozzie's Save the World Tour starting again in September. We had so much fun this spring that we're, ready, uh, we're already heading back out. We start September 8th in Columbus, Ohio at the King of Clubs. And we're doing some dates in Canada this time around as well. FozzyRock.com is all the dates, ticket information, along with our legendary VIP meet and greets. So come rock with us this fall. FozzyRock.com for more info. And still a few cabins available for Chris Jericho's Rock and Wrestling Rager at C4 Leaf Clover. We're setting sail February 2nd, 2023. We've got a great line of talent joining us. And for the first time ever, we're going to our own private island. Come experience the vacation of a lifetime ChrisJerichoCruise.com. All right, today on the show, Jay Bergen is John Lennon's lawyer who fought a major legal battle for him and wrote all about it in his new book, Lennon, the Mobster and the Lawyer, available now wherever you buy books. Basically, Jay met John in 1975 when Morris Levy, the mafia-connected owner of Roulette Records, released an album called Roots, an unauthorized version of a rock and roll oldies album that John Lennon had producing had been producing with, Jay, with Phil Spector called Rock and Roll. Morris Levy claimed that Lennon had verbally agreed to let Morris release Roots and sell it on TV. John did not. So Morris released Roots uh, without John's permission. It was basically a bootleg album filled with unfinished songs and rough takes. So Lennon's official label, Capital EMI, quickly released John Lennon Rock and Roll, the real album John had been working on. That prompted Levy to file two lawsuits against John and Capital, and for John to then file a countersuit against Levy, Jay Bergen walks us through the case, the outcome, and how he became the lawyer to represent John in the first place. He recalls meeting John and Yoko, spending time with him during the trial, what John was like on the witness stand, and why this case didn't seem to generate any media attention while it was happening. I never heard anything about it. I'm a Beatles fanatic. He also shares some great stories about Yoko's input during the case, his one-on-one audition with her at their home uh, at the Dakota in New York City. Fascinating story filled with great stories about John and Yoko in the 70s. Here we go with Jay Bergen, John Lennon's lawyer, right here, right now, on Talk is Jericho. All right, we'll just jump right into it, man. So the new book is very interesting to me, Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer. Uh, and we have Jay Bergen, who wrote the book here. Uh, finding new stories 
about the Beatles and about John Lennon are few and far between, but yet this is a story that I've never heard of before, and I'm a Beatles fanatic, and I think that's probably one of the reasons why you decided to write a book about this, Jake. Kind of tell us how this all came about and, and how you decided to write this tale that no one's really ever heard. Well, I had carried around with me for uh, 40 years, Chris, about five or six banker's boxes with the entire trial record, thousands of pages of testimony, Beatles albums and John Lennon albums as exhibits uh, that we used in court. And I had carried them with me for like through five moves, an unpleasant divorce. I guess that's kind of an oxymoron. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, and, it, and there they were. And they've been sitting. Uh, we live in North Carolina, a little town in the Blue Ridge Mountains. I suddenly one day, and, it's, and it was right around five years ago now, I began thinking, what am I going to do with these, all these files? Maybe, maybe I'll donate them to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame or something like that. So I went out to the garage. And they were in a storeroom in back of the garage. And I opened the box. Chris, I had not looked at these, any of these transcripts in 40 years. And I started reading John's testimony. And I got into about a half hour of reading the testimony. And I thought, there's a story here. Mm -hmm. I've got to tell this story. Because this was a time when John had gone through his lost weekend that he talked about. I met him on February 3rd, 1975. I think I met him on the day that he went back to the Dakota for the first time after he and Yoko had been separated for uh, about 18 months. There have been little bits and pieces about this case that I've seen in the press over the years. There was nothing going on really in terms of the press at the time of the case. There were one or two small articles in Rolling Stone and the more I thought about it, the more I thought, I've got to tell this story because I'm the only one that can tell it. Because I was there. I had the files. I have the transcripts. I spent a lot of time with John. And this is too important to let it go by without telling it because and I decided early to put in a lot of his testimony because it was really fascinating testimony. Uh, about he and the Beatles and how they started making records, how they produced albums, uh, how they gradually took control of the entire process hmm. of making the albums. And even, you know, that the Beatles really turned uh, album covers into an art, art form. Right. He gave all of that testimony about it. So let's talk about, about kind of what this, because you were the lawyer. Uh, you were John's lawyer for this trial. Yes. And give us kind of the basis of what the trial was and, and kind of the whole concept behind what was going on in that courtroom. Well, this Morris Levy, who was connected to the mafia, since he was Jewish, he couldn't be a member of the mafia, but he was tied to the Genovese crime family uh, in New York City. Vincent the Chin Gigante uh, was the head of the, of the uh, family. And he had been involved with the mafia for years. Morris was infamous in the music industry at this time for stealing royalties from singers, songwriters, a lot of black singers and songwriters. And he used to bring these bogus copyright infringement claims. And he brought one against the Beatles because of uh, John's song Come Together. The case was finally settled. He claimed that it come together, infringe the Chuck Berry song, You Can't Catch Me. Mm. And finally, they did a deal where John would record three of his songs, uh, including oh. You Can't Catch Me, on an album of rock and roll oldies. That's when John was recording that album, that rock and roll album, out in California under rather difficult circumstances with Phil Spector. Spector disappeared with the master tapes. Wow. It took about eight or nine months to get them back. John, in the meantime, recorded his album, uh, Walls and Bridges. And then Levy said, where are my three songs? They're not on Walls and Bridges. They had a meeting. And during that meeting, Levy claimed that John made an oral agreement to let him sell the rock and roll album on TV on a worldwide basis. 
there was nothing in writing, Chris. Gotcha. Just an oral agreement. And there wasn't such an oral agreement because John and his advisor at the time, a fellow named Harold Sider, told Levy, if we want to do this, we'll have to get EMI's permission. So, John, one of the things I found out about him was that first, he does not like saying no to people. Mm. He's very shy. And Levy kept harassing him about when am I going to listen to my songs? He knew that John was in the in a studio in New York recording the album. And finally, John gave him a rough mix of the unfinished album. And then Levy put out that album. And he called it John Lennon Sings the Great Rock and Roll Songs Roots. Wow. Right before that was when I met John because Levy was threatening to put out this album. So I went to a meeting at Capitol on, on February 3rd, at Capitol's offices on February 3rd, 1975. And halfway through the meeting, the door to the conference room opened and who walked in but John Lennon. Hmm. I had no idea he was going to be at the meeting. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> now, you can imagine... I started listening to rock and roll in the in the mid fifties when I was in high school, and I was a big Beatles fan. And I thought, "Oh boy, this is John <laughs> Lennon." <laughs> so Levy puts out the album. We rushed the Capitol album into production. And just to clarify, the album was called Rock and Roll. That's the name of the album. Well, John Lennon, Rock and Roll, Rock and Roll. Yeah, Levy's was called Roots. Gotcha. So. Out comes the Capitol album. Levy pulls the advertising for his album and then files a, a lawsuit in New York Supreme Court claiming that he had this oral agreement with John. Oh, wow. But then two weeks later, he filed another case in the federal court in New York claiming that there was a violation of the federal antitrust laws because John Capitol EMI and Apple Records had conspired to prevent him from selling the album. So we had two lawsuits at the time. Now, that has never happened to me in my career as a trial lawyer. Nobody's ever brought two actions. I kind of came to the conclusion that Morris was trying to pressure John, bullying him, thinking that he would settle like he settled the Come Together lawsuit. Well, at that point, John, as as you know, as a, as a Beatles and a John Lennon fan, John had dropped out of the music business. He was spending time at home. Yoko got pregnant. They were expecting the child in uh, October or November of that year. And he decided after we had a number of discussions that he was he didn't want to settle with Morris. He wanted to be rid of Morris Levy because Morris had gotten his clutches on him once with this bogus come together, you can't catch me case. And now he had him again. And of course, Capital didn't want to settle either. So off we went. The lawsuit in federal court, Chris, was the fatal mistake because court cases in New York Supreme Court don't move very fast. But in the federal court, particularly with the judge that got assigned to the case, Lloyd McMahon, cases move very, very fast. The judges really push these civil trials, keep their calendars in order. So that's how it started. Yeah. And, and then the, the lawsuit originally, you can't catch me, was because John used Here Come Old Flat Top. And that's one of the lyrics from You Can't Catch Me. Yes. The melody line is similar, but like you said, it's pretty much a bogus lawsuit to begin with. Well, the, the flat top. Chuck Berry was talking about a uh, convertible oh. that passed him on the turnpike. Uh, okay. But John was talking about a man who used to have a crew cut. A crew cut, yeah. <laughs> and had hair down to his knee. Right. So anyways, and like you said, then 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 Levy uh, wanted John to do three of the songs that he owned the publishing for, for the rock and roll album. So that's kind of a little bit of the background on that. Yeah. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com. 
T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. When John got you involved uh, with this, what was your kind of relationship with him? Like, Kind of talk about some of the personal stories you had with John. Obviously, you spent a lot of time with him for this lawsuit. Although I was really kind of in a little bit of awe at having met John Lennon that first day and was a Beatles fan. But, you know, after we got to know each other, John was just another client. Mm -hmm. I don't mean to belittle the fact that he was John Lennon and that, that this was an important case and that there was a lot of money on the line. But I treated John like any other client. I didn't ask him for an autograph. The photo he took of, he had Bob Gruen take of us in a restaurant where we had lunch every day, Sloppy Louie's. <laughs> he sent me a copy of that later on. I didn't ask him for that. And we really developed, you know, a friendship. And, and plus, not that we were buddies. Chris, we weren't going to hang out and I wouldn't call him and say, you know, uh, you want to go for a beer this afternoon? No, that's not the relationship. It was a client and a lawyer uh, relationship. But I would take him to different parts of New York City that he'd never been to, like uh, the first day of his deposition when levy's lawyers took uh, his deposition uh when we had the lunch break we were uh, in midtown and i suggested we go to the oyster bar which was in grand central station he said well i've never been in grand central station and, and as you know he was an art student before he mm -hmm. became a rock and roller and he was completely taken aback by the beauty of grand central station and then the oyster bar itself and then uh, the next day, we went to lunch at the Bull and the Bear, which was a restaurant in the Waldorf Astoria, kind of an English-type pub. He'd never been in the Waldorf before. Mm -hmm. uh, we walked through Central Park, and, and people would leave him alone. He had one rule, Chris. I'll give you an autograph. I'll give anybody an autograph as long as I'm not eating. Mm -hmm. that, was his, that was his rule. And the day we... The day we were walking up Park Avenue towards the Waldorf Astoria, a woman, a middle-aged woman, stopped right in front of us and blocked her way and said to John, you're George Harrison. <laughs> and John said, yes, I am. Thank you very much. And we continued walking after she let us go by. And the two of us started laughing hysterically in the middle of Park Avenue. <laughs> did, did John get recognized quite a bit or was he just another New Yorker? He was just another New Yorker. I, I think people in New York uh, often are, uh, are are used to seeing kind of celebrities. Right. And there, there was one day we were walking up Fifth Avenue near the Plaza Hotel, and all of a sudden he stopped and said, just a minute. And he turned around, and there were five or six people in back of us. And he walked back to them, and he said, you've been following me. He said it very, very politely. I didn't know anybody was following us. <laughs> he said, you've been following me. What do you want? And the people said, well, we'd like an autograph. He said, okay, I'll give everybody an autograph. But then you stop following me, okay? They said, yes, yes, we won't follow you. There we are standing on Fifth Avenue, and he's signing autographs. And after he finished them all, he said, thank you. They thanked him, and off we went. It's interesting, like, you know, when you, when you have a semblance of fame, you can always tell when someone's watching you or following you or recognizing you. It seems to me, though, from what you're saying, that, that Brian Epstein taught those guys very well to always be gracious to the fans. Like you said, I'll sign an autograph and then just stop following me, okay? Deal? Other people go get, quit following me. That's rude, you know? <laughs> well, I don't know who taught him that. Yeah, he was very polite. Yeah, uh, there, there was no problem. I mean, the day that day we walked into the Bull and Bear, the maitre d' was a tall kind of middle aged Irishman whose face lit up when he saw John. And he reached out, took John's hand and said, it's a pleasure to meet you and with a big smile on his face. And John said, it's a pleasure to meet you, too. He liked the people, but he liked the fact that in New York, he could go to the movies or he could have dinner. People wouldn't believe, wouldn't bother. Just kind of blend in, right? Yes. Was he uh, a funny guy? It seemed like he had quite a, a great sense of humor. He had an amazing sense of humor. And he was the best witness I ever had in a number of trials that I did. 
because we spent a lot of time, Chris, reviewing the facts. And the facts, to me, as a trial lawyer, were always the most important thing. You had to get the facts down. You had to know the facts. And he did not forget anything that we had talked about. And so during his testimony, it was almost like he was uh, he was just telling a story. And when it came to cross-examination, Levy's lawyer, who was the senior partner of this law firm, made a big mistake in the beginning of the case. He did not participate in the case in any way except for one or two pre-trial conferences we had uh, with the judge, which were very brief. But he had a younger lawyer in his office handle them. So he did not take any of the depositions. He did not take John's deposition. So when it got to the trial and John, you know, John was the key witness. I mean, the fact that he didn't take John's deposition bordered on malpractice because he really did not know what John was going to say in response to a lot of questions. So consequently, there were questions he asked where John really surprised him. And I'll give you one very good example. John at the time had long, long hair. But the week before the trial was started, I went up to the Dakota to meet him and just go over what, what was going to happen on the first day of the trial and everything. And when you got off the elevator, when the elevator door opened at the Dakota, there was a door right there that opened right into the apartment. So when the elevator door opened, I had already been announced. He was standing there with the door to the their living room uh, open. He had a big smile on his face, and he said, how do you like my haircut? He'd gotten a haircut, so he had almost a crew cut. Oh, wow. And if you look at the album cover of Roots, this was it was this horrible old photo of John with long, long hair. So he was surprising me. He said, how do you like my haircut? I said, looks great. Uh, it's just terrific. So we both started laughing. And, you know, I didn't ask him why he'd gotten his haircut. So on cross-examination, Levy's lawyer said to him at one point, because we were talking about the album cover and the long hair and everything, and he said, isn't it a fact, uh, Mr. Lennon, that you got your haircut for, just for this case? And John said, rubbish. I get my haircut every 18 months, and it was time to do it. <laughs> do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. Let's talk a little bit about what Morris Levy and some of the bad reputation that he had. You mentioned that he was notorious for kind of stealing royalties and that sort of thing. And that's kind of what John was doing here. He wanted to take a stand against Levy because of his ripping off of the artists and that sort of thing. But there was a lot of danger to this guy too, wasn't there? There could be. I mean, as a matter of fact, the week in February of 1975, right after the lawsuits were filed or the first lawsuit was filed, that was filed in, in the, like the early March, March 6th or something. Levy and uh, his black bodyguard, Nathan McCalla, were coming out of a restaurant with a apparently a very attractive young lady who was with Morris and a man who turned out to be a New York City plainclothes detective said to this woman, oh, you're a very pretty young lady, which infuriated Levy. They grabbed the detective. Nathan McCalla held his arms while Morris punched him in the face to the point where oh, he knocked the detective's eye out. Oh, wow. But he didn't knock it out, but they had to take it out in an operation a couple of days later. In June, right around the time I took Morris's uh, deposition, he was indicted along with McCalla. There was a civil lawsuit filed by the police detective. 
that case was settled. And then, Chris, the criminal file in the New York criminal court disappeared. Nothing happened. That's probably, you mentioned a little bit of the mafia connection. I'm sure that might have had something to do with it. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. When I took Morris's deposition, at one point, I asked him if one of his business partners was Tommy Ryan Eberly. Tommy Ryan was a boxer. That was his, like, his boxing name when he was young. But Thomas uh, Eberly had been assassinated in 1971 in the beginning of a, of a gang war in New York City. And when I asked him that question, Morris glared at me, his face turned red, and he got up and walked out of the room. I said to his lawyer, this young, this young lawyer who his main trial lawyer had turned the case over to, I said, what's going on? Where, where is, where's Mr. Levy going? He left the room. He came back in about 10 minutes later and sat down. And the lawyer said, Mr. Bergen, I, I think you should uh, change this line of questioning. Hmm which I did because I just wanted to make a point with, with Morris. I know who you are. <laughs> I know you're a gangster, and I know you were a buddy of uh, Thomas Eberle. So let's talk about the trial itself. And you mentioned the depositions and that sort of a thing. So you mentioned that John was also a great witness. So basically, essentially, he's trying to prove that Levy ripped him off by putting out this record without his permission. Is that the whole point of the case? There were two parts to it. The first part was Morris's claim that he had, that John had breached this oral agreement. Oral agreement, right. We won that part. John testified during that. He did a great job. The second part were counterclaims that John, Capital, and EMI uh, had filed because the Roots album uh, reduced the sales of the rock and roll album and also had damaged John's reputation with this really schlocky album. First of all, there were cuts on the album, uh, songs on the album that John had eliminated because uh, they sounded terrible from the Spectre recording sessions. Right. It wasn't the finished album. It wasn't, as John said, my album. There were really two parts there, and he gave a lot of excellent testimony in both of those sections. Well, let's talk about the first one. You said that you won quite easily talking about the... Uh the oral agreement. So what was John's, how, how does he prove, uh, what was his, his statements that he made to prove that there was a lie? We didn't use, we didn't win any of this easily. The thing, the thing that happened was that we were very prepared. I learned that early in my career, you have to be prepared. You have to know the facts inside and out. Morris's problem was, and I, and I remember saying this to John at one point, uh, you know, we have a big advantage in this case, John. And uh, he said, what's the advantage? I said, well, you're going to be telling the truth. Morris isn't. And Morris could not keep the terms of this oral agreement straight. He kept changing the terms. Gotcha. And one of the reasons that the judge in his written opinion threw out that part of the case was even the plaintiff, Mr. Levy, could not really formulate the terms of the agreement that he alleged he and Mr. Mr. Lennon entered into. And also, John made it very clear over and over again that he was tied to EMI. He told Levy that, and Levy had been in the music business for years and years and years, and everybody in the music business knew that the Beatles had been contracted to uh, EMI since 1962, 1963. So... We had the advantage that we were better prepared and had better facts. And you still got to prove them. And we did. So this is not a jury trial. This is a trial of the judge makes the decision. Well, yes, but the, the case started before Judge McMahon as a jury trial. And on the morning of the second day, but Levy's testimony was going very badly. He kept volunteering testimony. His lawyer would ask him a question, and he would kind of tell a story. And the judge kept admonishing him, Mr. Levy, just answer the questions, because I was objecting to his, his rambling answers. So the morning of the second day, John and Yoko would come to the office and pick me up in the morning. Yoko, we come into, the, into my office before we left, and uh, John said, Yoko has something to tell you. So I looked at Yoko, and she said, I consulted my Swami last night, <laughs> and I thought to myself, a Swami. Now, 
Now I'm dealing with a Swami. I said, what did the Swami say? The Swami said that the case was going to be interrupted today. The trial was going to be interrupted today. I looked at John. He would not look at me. I said, well, what did he say? She repeated it. The Swami said the trial is going to be interrupted today. I said, Yoko, we've got witnesses coming from Los Angeles, from London, from, you know, this is a judge who does not delay things. You can tell even after that first day that we're going to move, move along here quickly. No response. So we go to court. Morris continues to not do well as a witness. The judge is losing his patience. The judge also had a reputation for uh, having rather an explosive temper. And finally, I start cross-examining Morris. I'm shortly into the cross-examination when my colleague, Howard Roy, who's working with me on the case, starts pulling my jacket and pointing to Levy's lawyer right at the table in front of us. And he's holding up the Two Virgins album with the nude pictures of John and Yoko on the front and back. The jury is practically hanging out of the, uh, the jury box because we were in a very narrow courtroom. And I walked by Shirtman's off uh, table, grabbed the album, handed it to the judge, and I said, Your Honor, Mr. Le- Mr. Uh, Shirtman was showing this to the jury. <laughs> the judge Chris, turns around. He's got the album. He turns around and he starts trying to stuff the album into a round waste paper basket. <laughs> Shirtman is now standing next to me and says, Your Honor, Your Honor, please, please. That's, that's going to be one of my wit- exhibits. And McMahon turned to him and said, not in my courtroom. <laughs> that led to a mistrial. The judge asked us that we want to move for a mistrial. We did. And then he and Shirtman got in this very ugly argument with Shirtman baiting him to the point where he accused the judge of being biased against him. McMahon called him a liar. And Shirtman asked him to recuse himself. And he did. So there we are. We don't have a jury. Now we don't have a judge. And the trial is interrupted. <laughs> Yoko Swami was right. <laughs> <laughs> and I said to the other lawyers, I'm going down to see Chief Judge uh, Edelstein. And we all go down to Chief Judge Edelstein's chambers. He was not there. I dictated a memo to his secretary saying, we need another judge. By the time we got back to the courtroom after lunch, we were told we had a telephone messages to go down to the courthouse and meet an, another judge, Judge Grisey. He said that Judge Edelstein had signed the, ca- the case to him, and if we waived the jury, he could start the trial the next day. We agreed to waive the jury quickly. Shirtman did also. Uh, we started the trial the next day, and the key, Chris, was this judge, Judge Grisey was a harpsichordist and a pianist. And he played in a classical music group, but he did not know anything about John Lennon or the Beatles. Oh, wow. Or rock and roll music. And so what we did, what John and I did was, I said, we're going to, your testimony now, you're going to be able to communicate with him, one musician to another. And... There's a photo in the uh, in the book taken by Bob Bruin, who sneaked the camera into the courtroom one day when John was testifying in January of, of 1976. And if you look at that Coke photo very closely, you can see John has his finger kind of pointing towards the judge. The judge is, walk, is pointing to him, and they're having a conversation about music. Hmm. Shirtman, Levy's lawyer, got desperate and kept trying to interrupt these long colloquies where the judge would be asking John questions about the music and the albums and the album jackets and and everything. And it went swimmingly after that because the judge and John connected. So was it uh, at first, did you see it as a detriment that the judge didn't know about the Beatles or John Lennon, or did you see it as a positive? No, I thought it was a positive. Because he was a musician. Right, right. He even said to us, I listen to a lot of music, but I don't know anything about rock and roll. Hmm. What we were able to do, because John was such a great witness, the best witness I've ever had, he was able to explain everything to the judge and communicate to the judge. And that's also why I put so much of his testimony 
into the book, Chris, because it's it was just fascinating. There's a lot of, of of cool moments in that testimony. Just reading some of the articles that I've seen about him talking uh, directly about each track on the rock and roll album and why they appealed to him and why they meant something to him. Why he picked the songs? Yeah, yeah. Boney Maroney was the a song that his mother taught him on the banjo before he learned the uh, guitar. Uh, Lula was a song that he played or 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 he and Paul played the first day he met Paul at that church celebration in Liverpool. He had reasons for each one of those songs. He told, explained the judge to them, to them. I remember he told me about them one day we were walking through Central Park. I said, what, how did you pick these songs? How did you and Phil Spector pick these songs? He said, oh, and he went through the whole list and even said to me, nobody knows these reasons except me. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. So how come the trial didn't get more coverage? I mean, once again, this is John Lennon here in a fight against the music business in a a way. I think it was just that he wasn't eager for any coverage. This was also in the beginning when you used to have to go through metal detectors. This was really the early days of that. So we were trooping in and out of the courtroom uh, because John and Yoko, the night before the, the, the trial started, John called me at the hotel where I was staying because I lived way out in New Jersey and I, I had to stay in a hotel. I couldn't do the commute every day. And he called me about midnight and asked me if Yoko could come. And I said, oh, yeah, sure. I'm sorry. I, I didn't. I would have invited her. This was when Sean was about three months old. So they were there every day, 20 days. Wow. Spread out over January. The first part of the case was tried in January. The second part, we started in March because of the judge's schedule. But he was there every day, Chris, even, and so was she, even when he didn't have to testify. And he did that because he wanted the judge to know this is an important case. This is, this means a lot to me. It means a lot to us. So he was there every day. Was there a lot of other people in the courtroom? Like no. Sometimes you get those. No. <laughs> no. Well, I'll tell you a funny story. The first day of the trial, I was raised on Long Island. My mother and my father's sister, my aunt, came to the trial. Now, my mother had never seen me in court, had never asked me to come to court. But, of course, I hadn't represented John Lennon in court. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, And he was very polite to her. And he said, Yoko, Yoko, here's Jay's mom. They were both named Helen. No, there were not a lot of people in court. Again, I think it was because we, you know, we just kind of flew under the radar with this case. You mentioned Yoko a few times. What was what was she like, and what was her relationship with John from your observation? Well, in March, shortly after the the two cases started, John called me one day and asked me, "Can you come up to the Dakota tomorrow? Yoko would like to meet you." And I said, "Oh, sure. Should I bring anything?" He said, "No, no, no. Yoko just wants to meet you." So I went up. John was not there. Yoko and I talked for about an hour. She asked me about my background. What was my experience? Uh, she had read both of the complaints at this point. She asked me a lot of very pointed questions. And uh, she was very politely grilling me, <laughs> but nicely. And after about an hour or so, she said, well, I'm, I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk. I appreciate your coming up. Thank you very much. And I left. But it wasn't you may find this really interesting. It wasn't until I really started writing this book that I realized that that was an audition. Right. Yoko hadn't liked me. I would have been out because the two of them were really joined at the hip. I mean, I learned that more and more as the case went on. She, she would have just said, I don't like him. Get somebody else. I don't think he can represent you. As the trial winds on and you get to the, to near the end of it, how was it finally resolved? And did you feel good that you were going to win the case? Oh, yeah. 
uh, the judge wrote a 28-page opinion on the breach of contract part. We got it from the court at about 5 o'clock on a Friday night in February, and I called John, and John was just ecstatic. He yelled out, Yoko, Yoko, we won. And the other case, the, the counterclaims, he decided, he and Yoko did not come to the, there was a final argument after all the testimony ended. And as we were leaving and driving uptown in their limo after that, we were going to have the final argument the next day. Uh, John said, Jay, I'm not coming tomorrow. I don't want to listen to any more of uh, Bill Shirtman's or Morris Levy's nonsense. Mm. And the judge had already indicated that he was going to award damages. It was just a matter of how much they were going to be. And the total damages were over $400,000 to Capital EMI and John. John was about 150000 But Morris's lawyer went behind my back and John's back, and Capital and EMI settled the case for $200,000. And that left us, John and I, holding the bag to defend the entire appeal, not only the breach of contract part, but also the damages that were awarded to John. And the damages to John were reduced slightly, but he still wound up with about $86,000. But it was symbolic in in the sense that $86,000 is a lot of money to anybody. But the real key was that Morris Levy had been stopped in his tracks. Why would they have gone behind your back? Not why, but why would Capital have done that and and settled when they had the judgment already? I don't know. I I think that that Capital and EMI were just tired of the legal fees. They had hired a lawyer, a very high-priced lawyer uh, named Barrett Prettyman in Washington. Barrett Prettyman was coming back and forth from uh, Washington to New York. And, And also, John's contract was just about to expire. And I don't know whether they had, they were having negotiations on the side, but I couldn't figure it out. Look at all the money that Capital and EMI had made over the years, Chris. Sure. From Beatles and from John. And they were, they were basically kind of stabbing him in the back. Now, when you say that Morris Levy was stopped, it, it was that having that kind of blemish on his record. Did that affect his, I guess, abilities to rip other artists off? Well, I think there were there were later lawsuits. I think where Joni Mitchell brought a lawsuit against him and and stopped him. And then in 1986, he was indicted along with 17 other members of the Genovese crime family. Oh wow! In a big case involving the record industry before a federal grand jury in Newark, and he was indicted along with another member of the uh, mafia for extortion. And he was convicted, mm. sentenced to 10 years in jail, a $200,000 fine. He lost the appeal. And then about a month before he was supposed to uh, surrender to uh, uh, go to prison, he died of colon cancer. Oh, wow. But he was never quite the same after that case, I think. Do you want a beautiful lawn? Enter True Green, the easiest way to get a great lawn. Just water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and more. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour, and they have a verified best price, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com, T-R-U-G-R-E-E-N.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people. Guaranteed. I wanted to ask you this. I mean, obviously, in this day and age, Paul and Ringo are, are multi, multi, multi millionaire, billionaires, etc. Did John have a lot of money in the 70s? Uh, would you consider him to be wealthy at that point in time? I, I assume he was very wealthy because they lived in the Dakota, which was an expensive apartment uh, building in those days. But Yoko went on kind of a buying spree, and she wound up owning like four or five apartments in that building. Hmm. And after the case was over, they bought an estate out in uh, Cold Spring Harbor on the north shore of Long Island. They then had a big mansion that they bought in uh, Palm Beach. And the last thing I saw, you know, rumors were that uh, she was worth between 600 and $700 million. Yeah. 
I was just curious because, you know, you, you hear about in the 60s how they were ripped off by, you know, Dick James Publishing, and then these guys are getting ripped off. I just wanted to yes. kind of make sure that he had some cash. So that's, that's good to hear. Yeah. No, he was not wanting for money. I mean, not that they, not that he flashed it around, but uh, they also bought a farm in upstate New York where they raised prize cows and cattle. <laughs> that was all Yoko because John wasn't interested in that stuff. And he was kind of naive about it, too. Chris. Oh, that's interesting, too, though. That's interesting, too. A naive, even though they were the biggest band on the planet, still have that naivety to the business side of things. Yeah. I mean, when I interviewed Klaus Vormann, the bass player, who was a close friend of John's from their uh, Hamburg days, yeah. Klaus said, you know, John sometimes talks loosely about business. He's very naive. He might say, well, I'm thinking of doing an album with Bob Dylan. Well, He's with Capital and EMI. Bob Dylan's with, uh, you know, another record company, CBS, Columbia. Right. The business was not, that was not his part of the business, the music industry. You, you mentioned Klaus Vorman. What other witnesses did you call up or were called up? I didn't call Klaus, but I did call Jesse Ed Davis, who played lead guitar on the album. Jesse Ed Davis was a character. He was a uh, an Oklahoma Indian, long jet black hair. And I met him in, uh, well, you'll like the story. I finally met Jesse Ed. He was on the road with Rod Stewart and the Faces in Detroit. And I met him on the afternoon that they were going to appear at Cobo Hall. So I interviewed him for about an hour and a half in his room. And I really liked him. He had a great sense of humor. He was very, very smart. So after we finished talking, I had pretty much made up my mind I was going to use him as a witness. He said to me, well, what are you doing tonight? I said, nothing. I'm you know, I'm going back to New York in the morning. He said, well, do you want to come to the show? I said, oh, I'd love to. He's talking to somebody who uh, in high school and in, uh, in the mid-50s became a, you know, a rock and roll fan. He said, well, meet me in the lobby at 7 o'clock. I said, okay. So down to the lobby I go, and here's Jesse with the tour photographer and the members of the Faces. No Rod Stewart. They, the boys had obviously been uh, drinking a little bit. Everybody was having a good time. We're waiting for Rod. Finally, after about 45 minutes, the elevator doors open and out comes Rod Stewart with his girlfriend of the, of the moment, Britt Eklund, the Swedish actress. Yeah. They both got these long fur coats on and, <laughs> and they walk right through the lobby like the band wasn't even there. <laughs> and out onto a out out on the sidewalk, get in the limousine, and off they go. We all followed along. So there are the five members of the band. There's the photographer. There's me. Ronnie Wood had this beautiful black woman with him. So we're all packed into the limousine. We drive into the, the basement of Cobo Hall. The band gets dressed and gets you know ready and everything. And finally, the audience, meanwhile, with twelve thousand people upstairs, are screaming their guts out, but. We're on rock and roll time. They don't care. <laughs> <laughs> so off we go upstairs, and they had built this stage at one end of the arena. And I noticed on the stage there was a bleachers. And I couldn't figure out that was what that was for. But halfway through the show, these 12 violinists come out. They climb up the steps to the stage. They line up on the bleachers, and they accompany uh, Rod on uh, two songs. When they're finished, they come down. I've got my backstage pass hanging around my neck, and I'm in back of the stage, and I can't really see the show. So I thought, I had this idea. I'm going to climb up the steps and see if I can take a peek. So I go upstairs, up the steps. I go under the bleachers, and I stand up, and Chris, I'm right on the stage. <laughs> and I think to myself, oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I look out and I see the band, the five members of the band playing away. No Rod Stewart. Turn to my left and he's standing about three feet away. <laughs> At the same time I see him, he sees me. And over the roar of the crowd, he says, who the f*** are you? <laughs> <laughs> and he turns and he starts waving, trying to get the attention of a roadie on the other side of the stage. And I thought. This is my time to wait. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh, that's great. I dipped down under the bleachers, scrambled down the stairs. When we got back to the dressing room, I'm trying to hide. 
in a corner because I want to ride back to the hotel. Oh, that's great. <laughs> Last couple of things for you, Jay. Um, when the when the trial ends and the settlement happens, did you have any more uh, relationship with John after that? Did you keep in touch at all? No. Well, except for he came to the appeal. We argued the appeal in, in the uh, federal court in, in New York in January of 77. You know, I contacted him ahead of time and said, look, the appeal is going to be on January 27th, the argument. I hope you and Yoko are coming. Oh, yes. You know, we'll pick you up. Don't worry about that. And we get into the courtroom and we had to sit in the spectator section waiting for our case to be called. And Yoko is sitting just off to my right. And I notice out of the corner of my eye, she's got the tarot cards. And I didn't, I didn't know anything about tarot cards. I thought, oh, no. Now what's going on? <laughs> so after after that, I really didn't see him again. He kind of went back into his uh, house husband mode. When we finally won the appeal, I had to go up to the to the Dakota and bring a a case of Morris's records, his illegal records, up to uh, Yoko. But I didn't see John. So was this the kind of the, the 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 biggest trial of your career as far as the notoriety of it? Yes, I think so. But I represented the New York Yankees and and uh, some of the some of the other major league teams in their salary arbitrations with players, and and those were high profile. They were fun. In fact, uh, I'm one of many people who was fired by George uh, Steinbrenner over the years. <laughs> I could write a book about my experiences with George Steinbrenner, but I'm not going to. Last question for you, Jay. Is there is there a story uh, or a memory of John that sticks out in your mind as your favorite? That's a good question. I think the question, the, the story that I that I really liked was, uh, did I tell you the one about when Gruen took the photo in the courthouse? Well, you told you, you mentioned it, but you, did, you didn't tell the full story, I don't think. One of the days in January of 76, when John was on the witness stand, during the course of the day, I noticed that Bob Gruen was in court. We got in the limo at the end of the day drive uptown. And I said, uh, John, I saw John Bob Gruen in court today. What was he doing here? And he said, well, I asked him to come down and take a photo of me while I was testifying. And I said, you know, that's not really, that, that's illegal. That may be a crime. And he said, no, no, don't worry about it. He covered the camera with his coat. <laughs> and I said, well, why the photo? And John said, someday I'm going to write an album of songs about all my and the Beatles problems. And that's going to be the cover of the album. Wow. So it was a good example of, of John was always, he was always thinking. He even testified about how, you know, sometimes when he's just sitting in the courtroom, he's thinking about the lyrics for a song or something. But it's a great story. And it's also a good example of John, you know, really thinking ahead. And that picture is in the book. That's the picture that Bob Gruen took that's in the book. That's great, man. Well, the book is Lennon, the Mobster, and the Lawyer, the Untold Story. It's been great talking to you, Jay. Uh, and I'm looking forward to hearing more about it, reading more about it in the book itself. Okay, good. Enjoy talking to you, Chris. Thank you, Matt. I appreciate it. It was fun. 